You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how was he son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to rock around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. They all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so a few months ago, uh, we had someone ask us about a detail in, our, in the inside of our house. It was a woman that doesn't really know us very well, and she asked Michelle uh, about a portrait that's in our living room. And if you've been to her house, you know which portrait I'm talking about. It's this old man, white-haired man, very stern-looking man, just kind of sitting there staring into your soul. And so over the last few years, we've gotten quite a few questions about this portrait. So that that wasn't strange, that wasn't a really big deal uh, that someone was asking that question. But this woman asked the question sort of strangely and with like a little bit of superstition. Like she asked the question, can I ask, like who is in this painting? And so Michelle responds, well yeah, it's, um, it's Victor Hugo, the, you know, the writer of Les Mis and so on. And so the woman says, okay, good. And so Michelle's like, Why? And she tells Michelle because she thought that it, it may be one of our gods. And so Michelle was taken back, as I was too, and she's relaying this message to me. And I was like, what? what? One of our gods? But it, something struck me uh, when, when I heard that, that while assuming that a painting about Victor Hugo is a declaration about my worship, that's a little bit of a leap. But... The Bible makes it clear over and over again that there are details of our lives that do, in fact, tell a story about our worship, communicating to the world something significant. It's those details, and often those overlooked details of like how we treat others or how we spend our money that are, in fact, definitive statements about who or what is God in our life. Our relationship to others and our relationship with money is a direct window into our hearts and an indisputable statement about who or what we treasure most. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, speaking of the day of judgment, says that the king will, you know, he'll say that I was hungry and I was thirsty and I was a stranger and I was naked and I was sick and I was in prison. 
And the people are going to come to the king and they're going to be like, wait, what? When did we see you sick and hungry and thirsty and naked and alone and, and in prison? What are you talking about? And the king will say, the way that you treated the least of these, you were doing it unto me. What the king will say, and, and essentially, is how you interacted with the most vulnerable people in our society will be the true test of how you interacted with me. That will be your, the litmus test of your devotion to me, the king. It was also Jesus, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, who himself said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Think about that statement. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so if someone were, were to audit your, your budget or your bank account and add up all of your spending over the last week and, and month and years and maybe even decades, what would it say? What would it say about what is most important to you? It's not a matter of if it would say something. The question is, what would it say? What would it be communicating? And I would argue this morning that accountants and bankers probably have more insight into the health of your soul than anyone in the entire universe next to God. Direct insight into what is going on inside of us. Why? Because your bank statement is a statement of faith. It issues from your trust or lack thereof, revealing what your heart is truly anchored to. Like we see here in Mark, somehow, some way, how we live, the details of our lives are painting a portrait of who we worship, one brushstroke at a time. And this idea, I believe, is what really ties these three brief scenes together that we see here in Mark, that our lives speak. What we're going to do is we're going to look at three things here this morning. David's declaration, the scribe's demonstration, and then ultimately the widow's devotion. David's declaration, the scribe's demonstration, and the widow's devotion, all three are revealing something verbally, relationally, and financially, displaying something. So let's look first at David's declaration. Look with me in verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, I have to admit, there are a lot of words sort of strung together there that may not make a lot of sense. And I understand that. So let's, let's put this in context. The context is that Jesus is teaching in the temple, which was the epicenter of the Jewish faith. And this is in Jerusalem, which was the center of power in Israel. This was the place where the people would expect for the Messiah to appear. The triumphal entry reveals that the people are expecting Hosanna, the son of David, and they're, you know, they're, they're praising and they're singing because this is who they think has arrived, the Messiah. It was understood that when the Messiah or the Christ came, that he would be a descendant of David. He would come from the royal lineage, from the offspring of David. And this is, this is for good reason, because it's based on a covenant that God had made with David himself. It's recorded in 2 Samuel. 
as, uh, I'm sorry, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's a promise that God made to David that he would be a human descendant from the royal lineage of David. Now, the gospel writer Matthew in the genealogy shows us how this is legit. Jesus does come from the royal lineage of David. That part is worked out. But here's the question that Jesus is raising, and he's really raising a question about himself. Here's the question. If the Messiah is merely a human king, like you think, like you're expecting, then answer me this. Why does David who is inspired by the Holy Spirit and who is the writer of Psalm 110, why would he call this king to come Lord? Think about this. What king would refer to his descendant as Lord? My son, yes. My child, yes. My offspring, yes. My seed, yes. My Lord? No. Unless the Messiah to come would be a greater king than David. Not only the the fully human descendant from David, but the fully divine son of God. David doesn't simply anticipate another descendant to come and, and rule over the kingdom, but he's anticipating the divine king, the God man, fully God, fully human, who would establish the heavenly kingdom here on earth, a greater kingdom. This is who David is anticipating in Psalm 110. Now, I realize some things about this passage and probably most of what we're covering here in Mark. And it's this, that issues of messianic expectation, that's what they call this. I realize that issues of messianic expectation probably don't seem very pressing in your life right now. I understand that probably no one was up last night and couldn't sleep over the idea that the anticipated Messiah that would come from David would somehow be Lord, and this is probably not a controversy that's keeping you up at night, and I understand that. And ancient controversies probably don't seem very relevant to life at all. But it's really vital that we see what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is forcing the religious to re-examine their assumptions about the Messiah. And I believe that that's what God intends to do in our time as well. See, here's the truth at the heart of Jesus' question. The truth is that Jesus is never going to be less than what you thought. He will always be more. He is never less than what you think he is. He is always more. We do not have the ability to exaggerate who Jesus is. We can misunderstand him. We can misrepresent him. We can manipulate his promises to try to fit our expectations of him, but we can never exaggerate who Jesus is. He is always greater than our greatest thoughts of him. This is what Jesus is pushing the religious leaders to see. Your Messiah is too small. Your expectations are not too high. They're too low. An author named J.B. Phillips, uh, sometime in the 50s, I believe, he wrote a book called Your God is Too Small. 
And in it, he discusses a bunch of faulty ideas that we have about God. Many of us think of God as like a policeman. Or we think of God as an uptight parent or benevolent old man or a manager or a God in the box and on and on. I think probably over the last 60, 70 years, our, our ideas of Jesus have probably developed but not risen to the occasion. Some of us believe that God is a helpless, aloof deity in the sky. Some of us think of God as that, just that person that is just constantly disappointed with who we are. Some people think that God is a cruel tyrant that doesn't care. Some people think that God is a genie in a bottle that just gives us whatever we want. There are a lot of ideas that we have about God. But as he mentions, your idea of God, your God is too small. And so what he does is in, in the introduction of his book, he makes it really clear about what his intention is in the book. He says, my intention is to expose the inadequate conceptions of God which still linger unconsciously in many minds and which prevent us from catching a glimpse of the true God. Here's what he's getting at. And here's what I think Jesus is getting at here in the temple. That your assumptions about Jesus are actually holding you back from truly seeing Jesus. Your faulty conceptions of God are actually keeping you from seeing God clearly. This is what's blinding the religious leaders from truly knowing and, 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 and seeing and recognizing the Messiah, the wrong expectations. And if I may be so bold to you this morning as well, that may be blinding you today. You may be blinded to who Jesus is because of your expectations of who you think Jesus should be. We all have the expectations. None of us came in here completely open-minded, ready to receive and be confronted and challenged about our ideas of Jesus. Many of us have our ideas that we hold tightly to, that we cling to, that we don't want anyone to disrupt or undermine. In the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 6, it tells us that the prophet catches a glimpse of the glory of God in the temple. And it's a very glorious scene where the angelic hosts are declaring, holy, holy, holy. With two wings, they cover their faces. With two wings, they cover their feet. And with the other two, they are flying. It's a very glorious, heavenly, sacred moment like none other. And it's really interesting. You know, you know what Isaiah does in response when he sees this vision of God? What, what does he do? Does he say, wow, that's exactly what I expected. God, you're everything I always thought you would be. This fits my idea of you perfectly. No, he says, woe is me, for I'm undone, which can be literally translated destroyed, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. How do you know that you have been in the presence of the living God? You're undone. How do you know you've been in the presence of the living God? You are unsettled. You are un you're challenged. Your neat little categories for how God works and what God looks like are obliterated. They're destroyed. They're undone. They, they, they crumble and fall to pieces. You know that you've been in the presence of the living God when you're forced to recognize that your God is just too small. Your Messiah is just too small. Like the prophecy that Jesus gives of the temple, 
being destroyed, our neat little box that we think that God fits in needs to be broken down as well. See, Jesus has to destroy your low view of himself before you can see him appropriately. He's got to bring down that, that, those neat little categories before you can actually see the God that breaks the categories. It means that he has to break your comfortable little religion that fits into your neat little weekend. Or for some of us, about half of our weekend. He's got to destroy what we think fits cozy into our lives in order for you to become the man or woman of devotion before you too can delight in him and hear him gladly like the crowd hears him gladly in verse 37. See, this is pushing us to see that there are essentially two responses when Jesus comes and unsettles us. We can delight in him or we can reject him. We see the the crowds delighting, hearing him gladly, receiving what Jesus is doing, and then we see the religious leaders rejecting what he's doing. Will you receive him or will you reject him? Will you delight in this Jesus or will you push him off? And what we see in these next two accounts here are really examples of this. We see the scribes who have a very low view of God that leads to a very self-centered religion. And then we see this woman who has a very high view of God that leads to a self-giving devotion. And so let's look secondly at the scribes' demonstration. The scribes' demonstration. There are, there is... One imperative in the entire portion of scripture that we're looking at today. One command. One, like, if you go and do something immediately, you need to go and do this. Any guesses what that imperative is? Beware. One imperative. Beware. Beware of what? Beware of the scribes. And how they demonstrate their self-centered religion. What we're reading of here, we need to remember that this sort of religion is not just a lesser expression of Christianity. This is not just a Christianity that is sort of missing the mark. Jesus says, beware. What do we need to beware of? We need to beware of threats. Something that is coming for us. Something that will undermine our faith. Something that threatens to destroy us. This sort of religion displayed in the scribes is a threat to the life of faith. Now, when you think about things that are a threat to faith in America, what do you envision? Vices, demons. Some of us, you know, the the moral erosion in America, persecution. For some of you, Bill Nye the science guy. You know, all these people people that we, we have determined are a threat to the Christian faith. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't talk this way about sinners. Jesus doesn't talk this way about adulterers. Jesus doesn't talk this way about uh, drunkards. Jesus doesn't talk this way about even murderers. He reserves this language for a very particular group of people. Look, listen to how he describes this, this threat to your life of faith, verses 38 through 40. In his teachings, he said... Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Here's who you need to look out for 
the people that pray the long, eloquent prayers. Look out for the sweet talker in the church. Look out for that slimy individual that knows their way around the terminology. They, they know the lingo. They, they're able to sit out ahead. Wow, what a person. What, a, what an example. Look out for them. Jesus describes a religion that appears holy, that appears devout, but he says is pretentious. In fact, the word used here for pretense means a disguise or a cloak. These are individuals that are cloaking themselves. What, what is Jesus describing? What Jesus is describing is that their religious exteriors are covering a deep, dark evil within. I'm reminded of Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. It's a weird story, and I love it. So the story of, of Dorian Gray follows this young man. He's very handsome, and he's named Dorian. And he's confronted and, and really unsettled by this idea that one day he's going to be old, and he's going to lose his youth, and he's not going to be handsome anymore. And he's devastated by it. And so what he does is he curses this portrait of himself, and he forfeits his soul in order to stay young. And how things work from that point on is that as he lives, the, 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 work be, or the, sorry, the portrait begins to age, but he stays youthful and, and young and handsome. And so Dorian begins to live an extraordinary hedonistic life. He's seeking pleasure at other people's expense. He leaves this huge wake of devastation behind him. And rather than aging, the interesting thing is rather than aging, rather than wearing the marks of his crazy, selfish lifestyle, he remains handsome. He remains youthful. But the picture begins to age. The picture begins to portray an uglier, meaner Dorian. And so what does he do? He cloaks it. He covers it, and he puts it up in the attic. And after hiding the picture, he dives headfirst into a life of sin and corruption and murder and cover-up. And over many, many, many years, his life just gets uglier and uglier. And his life, as his life gets uglier, he stays the same, but the portrait gets uglier. And so after a series of deaths and cover-up, he faces the reality of the painting and he realizes just how ugly his life has gotten. He finally comes face to face with this picture is a representation of my life. So what he does is he determines to change. This is like the turning point for him. He wants to turn his life around. But instead of acknowledging his wrong, instead of confessing his sin and repenting, he simply tries to amend his life by doing good. He tries to tip the scales of good and evil in order to reverse the trend that he sees in this picture. He begins to live a good life. He begins to do good things, even sacrifices for people. And he's starting to appear like he's a legit guy. He's a remorseful, changed individual. And so after time, hoping that he's done something, you know, done what he needed to do in order to reverse this, this, this picture, he goes to the picture expecting to find a more beautiful, more handsome, more youthful Dorian. But to his dismay, it's actually uglier and more horrific than ever before. And it poses the question, why? And what he discovers is he comes face to face with this absolutely horrific, disgusting picture of himself. 
is that true motives, the true motives of his heart, the true motives of his self-sacrifice and change were truly selfish. All the things that he was doing was just selfishly motivated. Despite what he appeared to be looking like, the painting didn't lie. It wasn't genuine love for others. It was self-love. And at the end of the day, the portrait of hypocrisy and self-centered religion was uglier than the wild, out-of-control Dorian ever was. This is what we see here in Mark chapter 12. What is demonstrated here is not faith in God, for God. What we see demonstrated here is faith in self, for self. True faith looks to God, looks to Christ to clothe us in the righteousness of God. Faith in self looks to self to cloak ourselves and to make ourselves righteous. One leads to beauty. Jesus says one leads to condemnation. The reality is that we need to heed this warning here because this is the sort of religion that uses people for our own esteem. This isn't just about us and God here. These are individuals that are leaving a wake of destruction behind them. Stockton does not need more religion that uses people. Stockton doesn't need us doing stuff for people for the way that it will make us feel. Stockton doesn't need our care and our love and our support and our mercy and our help so that we can snap the picture and say, look at all the good things that reality has done for this city. In the long run, it leads to taking advantage of the more vulnerable people around us, and it begins to mistake people's praise for license to exploit them. This is what we see here. And in the end, it brings, according to Jesus, more severe condemnation. Beware. Beware. Let's look third and finally at the widow's devotion. The widow's devotion. Look with me in verse 41. And he sat down opposite uh, the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. Now, at the temple at the time, there were these large chests that, were, that had openings in them that were shaped like trumpets. And this is where the money offered to the temple would be put in. And it's really interesting, the language here for, for putting in, the rich people put in their money, the, the, the word is actually better translated cast in or throwing in. And so what Jesus and his disciples observe here are wealthy individuals announcing their giving with the loud clang of the trumpet. They're throwing it in for the attention. Like a hurricane relief with paper towels, that sort of thing going on there. It's, it's an order to show. It's, really, here's the question beneath the clank of the trumpet as they're pouring their money in. Who's watching? Who's watching? Now, this reminds me of tipping at a coffee shop. If you know how to tip appropriately at a coffee shop, I could use your help. Because this always causes a little bit of anxiety in me every time I come to the tip jar because I overanalyze it. Here's why. 
I want to express my appreciation for the establishment and the hard work that's being put into it. But I also don't want to be the person that is waiting for the person to see me put the money in the tip jar. And so there's sort of this, this you know, you know uh, well, dilemma, because I want them to see that I care, but I don't want them to see that I'm putting it in. And so, you know, do I take the dollar out now when I'm paying? I do a little ambidextrous action. I put it in at the same time. Do I wait till they're turned around because I don't really, you know, I don't care if they know that I put it in there. I just want to show my appreciation. So, like, I overthink this every time at the tip jar. I'm just like, ah. One of the important things here is who's watching. This is really what's at the heart of what's going on. Who's watching? The rich give for the attention. That's why they're doing it. But they're missing the bigger point because as, as Mark shows us here, Jesus is watching. Jesus sees your giving. Jesus sees you. Now, that could be, that could cause a little bit of defense in some of us. Like, Jesus, Jesus is watching you. Jesus, Jesus is like, really? That's all you got? But I actually think that there's a more hopeful tone here. Jesus sees. Jesus sees. When you're feeling overlooked, friend, Jesus sees. When you are feeling unappreciated, Jesus sees. When you are tempted to think that what you're contributing to the kingdom of God is insignificant and no one cares, listen, Jesus sees. He's watching. It matters. You matter. And his opinion of you matters most. And so this account here in Mark shows us that what the world would overlook or maybe even laugh at. I have to imagine if anyone else was watching this woman, it would just be like, oh my gosh, what a pathetic display. But look at me in verses 42 through 44. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make one penny. And he called his disciples to him. He says, come here, come here, come here. I want to show you something. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they have all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had and she, everything that she had to live on. All that she had, she has put in. See, this woman gives two small coins. They're called leptas. At the time, it was the smallest increment of money in the Greco-Roman world. It didn't get any less significant than this. And Jesus is commending her. He's literally bringing his disciples over and saying, guys, you have to watch this. I need you to see this. Pay attention to what you're about to see right now. He's praising this action. He's commending her. And this is in stark contrast to when the religious leaders come and they're like dumping all their money in, just like that person at the grocery store and the coin star, that, you know, pouring their bucket in is just coin after coin after coin, and Jesus is totally unimpressed. So the question is why? What is the difference? Because both technically are being given to God. The two copper coins 
and the bucket being poured out, both are going to God. So what is the difference? And I believe it's this. It's because the rich gave some out of their abundance, but she gave all out of her poverty, which means that they displayed their trust in their wealth while she displays her trust in her God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, man, I just wish God was real in my life. I wish I could just experience, I hear about these people that experience God like on a daily basis and they interact with the presence of God and they have these really meaningful experiences of God and, I'm, I, and I, I just wish that God was real in my life. But what if that's because for so many of us, we refuse to place ourselves in the situations where we really will discover that God is real? Maybe it's because we are refusing to step out in faith and offer God our full selves. I can only speak for myself, but in my own life, God is very hard to discover in times of comfort and ease. Very hard. Almost totally absent. When I'm refusing to risk for him, when I'm playing it safe, in times where we don't necessarily require trust. One of the primary ways that God moves us out into trust and therefore us experience him is through calling his people to give. This is why we give. Because God is growing our trust and our experience of him. How do we give? Well, first we give to the work of the local church and then above and beyond to the poor, to organizations, to overseas missions. The Bible lays out a concept of the tithe, which literally means 10%. 10% of our earnings off the top before anything else is spent, given to God through the church. Now, there's a lot of debate about whether now we, the New Testament church, should respond to the Old Testament command of the tithe. You hear a lot of people say, well, we're under grace, we're no longer under the law, therefore, we don't need to tithe anymore. I actually believe that Jesus actually reinforces the tithe in Luke. He, he actually says that this is something that we do, but we go, we go above and beyond. So here, here's the question, really, not getting into the debate here. The bigger question is this. Does the grace of God enable us to give less or more than the law required? Does the gospel of Jesus Christ lower the bar for devotion or raise it? And in light of the grace of God, what this means is 10% becomes the starting point, not the goal. It's not the goal to achieve, it's the starting blocks for the Christian faith. But here's the question, because we always want to know why. Why? And I, I'm oft, often as a pastor asked, why 10%? What is so significant about the, the 10%? And here's my best answer. It's because that's where it just starts to become sacrificial. That, that is the beginning blocks of sacrifice in our lives. And God has called us into a life of sacrifice with him. When the Bible talks about giving and generosity, it always has sacrifice in mind. That's what we need to remember. It always has sacrifice in mind. If it doesn't hurt, it's not sacrifice. If it's not painful, it's not sacrifice. 
If it doesn't totally alter your life, it's not sacrifice. If it's after you've paid all your bills and done all the fun entertainment and eating out that you want to do in your life, it's not sacrifice. If it doesn't cause you to cast yourself upon the mercy of God and trust every day for his provision, it's not sacrifice. It's something, but it's not sacrifice. And what Jesus is interested in in our lives is a life of sacrifice. Because it's not so much about what we are doing, it's really about who we're becoming. And for the Christian, we are becoming like none other than the self-sacrificial Jesus Christ. So here's the big question. The big question is no longer what should I give to God. Here's the bigger question that we need to ask ourselves. What have I held back for myself? What am I withholding for myself? Look at me in verse 44. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty was put, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now, some commentators discuss how uh, when this is translated into the English, it falls short a little bit because the last word here is bios, which means life. This goes beyond money. I hope you hear me right. This goes beyond money. It could be better translated, she put in everything she had, even her whole life. That's the point. Why is Jesus making such a big deal about this woman's display of faith? Why does he call the disciples over? Why is this recorded for us to be talking about thousands of years later over two copper coins? It's not just because it serves as an example of giving, but because her life serves as a window into the gospel. And this is the point of it all. This is the point of our lives. It's been said before that we are most like God when we are giving. We reflect the nature of God most when we are generous and when we are sacrificially giving. And so what this means is her sacrifice is reflecting an even greater sacrifice to come. This is why Jesus is saying, pay attention. Jesus previously said in Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Dwell on that passage. Friend, this is where real life change happens. This is where absolute devotion to God is created. It's not simply in knowing and saying right things about God. It's not just our ability to avoid the pitfalls of the religious leaders either. And it's not even simply following the example of the poor woman. It is when we, in faith, look to Jesus, who truly gave it all for us, who parted ways with his position in heaven, his wealth, even his relationship with the Father, even shed his own blood on the cross for us. See, as I mentioned earlier, our giving is a window into our heart. But here's the bigger point. Jesus' giving is a window into his heart as well. And it's there in Jesus' giving that something is being displayed. This is a portrait 
not just of his love and devotion to the Father when we look to the cross. It's a portrait of his love and his devotion to you and me, to humanity. See, the irony of Dorian Gray, and it may be an irony that some of us are living into, the irony of Dorian Gray is that the more that we try to clean up the portrait of ourselves, the more that it's marred. The uglier it gets, the more horrific it becomes, and the more we want to hide it. And the same is true for us. The more that you stare into your own reflection, the worse it gets. Self-improvement will always make the image worse. This is the only picture that will truly change you. This is the only picture that will truly transform your heart and warm your heart and make you a willing, generous person that gives themselves away selflessly to God and to your neighbor. The picture is the display of Jesus Christ's self-giving love at the cross where Jesus took upon himself our selfish ugliness and sinfulness, and he gave to us his beauty, his joy, his generosity, and his spirit. And it's as we stare deeply in Christ, we stare deeply into this portrait, you will begin to reflect him. A concept that runs all throughout the scriptures is that you become what you behold. And so my challenge for you today is to behold this self-giving love and this self-giving Jesus Christ as you behold him, become like him. Amen?